Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I'm Frank Capello. So Frank, we're going to jump right in because I've been dying to talk to you about this one particular show that I know we have both started engaged watching. Engaged with? Eng- <laughs> engaged with. <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant because I know that we both, well, we both saw like, I don't know about you, but I saw the headline for this on Netflix like that it was out and I thought no this is like a black mirror joke so we're talking about squid game the challenge and if that name sounds familiar to you it's because squid games squid game games squid game squid game was although there are um, multiple games in the the game so but yes but the 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 South Korean show squid game is where the genesis of this yeah yes was um a tv series netflix that a lot of people a lot of people have asked like we've been wanting to cover on this show because it is like a deeply anti-capitalist film or series and it's um basically about a bunch of people who go into the surrealist game show to fight for millions of dollars and they actually once they get there they find out that the game is if you lose you die and you get Mm -hmm. shot on the spot that's right that's the essence of it Yes, that is that is the essence of it. And then I'll just add and these are people like on the margins of society. Yes. You know, these are people with like gambling addictions, these are people with like, you know, massive amounts of debt. These are people who are homeless. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's like these rich these, you know, ultra, ultra rich billionaire types who are essentially using poor people as pawns for their yes. entertainment. They really make an effort in the T V series to fill out the character so you understand like this is the there's no other option under the extremities of like where capitalism has taken this society and so this is why people go say yes to playing the squid game now squid game the challenge you you could say similarly actually because that people don't they're feeling like we don't have a choice um, right now in America, and a lot of people up top who, when they interview the players, are saying things just like this. One person says off the top an actual quote from a contestant on the show, $4.56 million, people do a whole lot worse for a whole lot less. And another contestant mm. says, who's not in debt? We're facing a recession. I'm not getting paid by work for this, but I'm dreaming big, taking a chance yeah, and if we and if we haven't made it clear, like this is a what we're yeah. talking about is a reality TV show, a reality competition show on Netflix, basically set in the world of Squid Game. So literally frame by frame, the whole game. It looks just yes. like the show. Yes, it looks just like the show. The people are not dying when they get eliminated because you know Netflix is as of yet not legally allowed to do that. But let me tell you what, they get hit really hard with a paint gun and they have to play dead. It's so surreal. Mm-hmm. They fall down dead. Yes, it's extremely surreal. So there's there's a lot of different angles to come at this from. I mean, first of all, there's the on the surface, you know, Netflix had this massive hit this show Squid Game and then immediately was like, okay, now how do we franchise this? How do we make, how do we use this IP? Because, you know, it it went from being just like this original story to then after its massive success becoming this extremely valuable piece of 
intellectual property. And I think it was, I, I remember reading shortly after the show had exploded, like this this reality show, Squid Game the Challenge, getting greenlit. I remember reading oh that. My I was like, God. Up, oh, oh, it's, we're fucked. Okay. So there's already that, like, Squid Game the show is a deeply anti capitalist, deeply critical show about our economic system, and then immediately, <laughs> immediately franchises itself into this this like bastard reality show version. So that's like the that's like the first layer of analysis. And I just just to to jump on that, I, I literally my note was like, what is satire anymore? I mean, I think it was so disturbing for that reason that I'm just like, if you if they immediately commodify and capitalize on this story that we really thought is, and is, but like I don't know. I guess the question is, does it lessen it? It certainly lessens it a little bit for me how can you watch it knowing that immediately because okay my immediate thought was certainly the director has something to say about this right could you imagine writing this and then having your night your peak late stage capitalist nightmare just be come to fruition like you created this monster so I looked it up and I, I, I don't even know what to do with this so the director said when being asked about the reality show. I think this was an Entertainment Weekly article. Yes, I'm aware of the reality show being created. I actually met with the creator yesterday and they had many questions for me. What I hope is that they will be carrying on my vision and intention as much as possible for the show, to which my thought was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what? Second, like how? In what way? It's a reality yeah. show. You know the premise. And then goes on to say, I think that even though our show does carry quite a heavy message, and I know there are some concerns of taking that message and creating it into a reality show with a cash prize. However, I feel like whenever you take things too seriously, that's not really the best way to go for the entertainment industry. Doesn't really set a great precedent. So I would say that re productions of such efforts are going to bring new meaning to the industry and i hope that this is going to be a great new direction for the industry overall like what the fuck what? are you talking who are you i felt like did they take this person who made such a brilliant anti-capitalist series and replace them with ai like what i or just like co-opted or i i have no idea and now i'm curious i want to like dig deeper into like the the machinations behind the scenes because i'm wondering you know like how much was he got this, paid how much he got paid like or also was this solely netflix's decision you know like had he in in selling squid game the series to netflix did he sign over basically all the reproduction and franchising of this series of, or of mm. this ip so like maybe this maybe this was a decision that he doesn't even get to uh, weigh in on maybe this was like Netflix just being like hey guess what we're making a reality show out of your show and he signed I, I a contract where he has to like cheerlead it that's what I don't get I could I could see that but I'm like why the why the promotion I mean if I'm gonna pretend to be like a psychotherapist for a second I think you know it's someone operating within within the traditional media as you know as non-traditional as like streaming is at this point it is like it's supplanting traditional media so working within that ecosystem you know this this guy like he has his deal with Netflix you know he he's making the squid game the the actual TV series uh the the second season so i'm sure it's a lot of internal grappling with like you don't want to I'm not here for that 
I'm not here for that either, but I'm I'm just like I'm <laughs> I'm theorizing here. It's like, you know, you know. don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. You don't want to shit well, where fuck you eat. That. I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I, I know. I mean, I think it's like it's a hard, but I guess I just you know what it is. I feel so let down because I just like I really buy into like where where it was so it was pure. Story, it, felt pure. it was so it felt so pure. And I don't I mean, like this feels so it's one thing if it's like a little change to sell the whole freaking reality show in this dystopic way where you have literally 456 players and they're like competing and they have the ball of money. Everything that you like to me as an artist, it's like, well, you're just basically saying your concept was bullshit. Like you didn't really believe any like to me, that's what it says. Like, I don't know. That's where I'm at. It really upset me on top of it. What you should know is that so they're like, as I said, there's 456 players at the top of this. Frank, they are they haven't officially um, set a lawsuit, but players are seeking compensation, a lot of them for injuries that they were sustained. I did read about this, yep. There was like, because they were be they're forced to do all of this stuff that was like painfully, I think they shot it in New Britain, or Britain, and it was um, really cold, so there was frostbite and hypothermia. They're recreating the conditions of like how, that we're watching the first series, like, wow, capitalism really look at how horrible it is to the majority of people and like how disgusting it is and then we're just going to recreate it as a reality show and you're cool with it as the creator of that it's so strange to me it, i find it deeply depressing and i don't think like someone like i can't imagine a boots riley would be like maybe that's me putting someone on a pedestal ped pedestal pedestal and maybe that's me maybe that's because boots riley was on our show um check out that episode <laughs> if you haven't heard it but like you know what i'm saying that just to me seems so like how do you go to sleep at night sorry it's yeah weird. no i mean he he did say in his interview with us that someone wanted to you know like do an ip-based animated series on the the equisapiens right. and and he was like yeah i met with some writers no one really got it so i was like no i don't want to do it so it, it yeah it's possible to stick to your values and and not allow not allow the cultural value of, I guess, your of what you're creating and your intention behind making it and what you're saying with the piece. Not let that be corrupted by the, what I'm sure is the millions and millions of dollars or or just a lot of money that you know, like the creator of Squid Game is getting paid to you know watch real people play his murder games. Yeah, it's just that deep. It's that elite capture of it all, right? Of like how we're constantly anti-capitalist ideas and we have to just be con this has to be part of our criticism and awareness anti-capitalist ideas anti-racist ideas are continually being co-opted and sold back to us and this is a really profound example of that i i don't even know what else to say it's so strange yeah the the, the last thing i'll say is i i did watch the first episode and i those lines that you said that were included about, you know, everybody's in debt, you know, people have done a lot worse for a lot less. Like those were that that's like in the first like three minutes of the first episode. So I'm seeing that and I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is, you know, as as uh, as much of a co contradiction of this show's existence, I was like, maybe they are really going to lean into the spirit of the original Squid Game series and really give a platform for these contestants to talk about economic hardship and what it means and have that be a real thematic through line of this <laughs> wow. thing. And then th that is those such two a lines. Good faith idea. I love that idea. I was trying. I was like, look, I, I, 
I try to enter everything in a good faith, and I was like, okay, maybe I'm like, if that's if they're going to spotlight that, then maybe this makes this fucking bullshit a little bit more palatable, and make maybe it gives it a little bit more intentionality. But those two lines that you read, or those those are the only lines about economic hardship. Then the rest of it is just the like, rest are this. I have a few more. For me, everybody is just money. Sympathy is a weakness. My biggest strength, manipulation. We're going to get the best and worst of everyone. Like, it's wild. Truly wild. All right, we should get to our conversation for today about Zoolander. Uh, but before we do, if you're new here, just want to let you know that this podcast that you're listening to is brought to you by The Lever, which is a reader-supported investigative news outlet. And you can go to levernews.com to find all of their original reporting. As we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. What we do is rely completely on community support to keep going, which means getting to all of our labor for editing and creating. So if you enjoy this show and you would like to support us, you can head over to mvcpod.com to chip in. Paid supporters also get access to our monthly premium episodes featuring discussions about even more movies, television, music, podcasts, theater, and anything else we are watching or listening to. And as a bonus, paid supporters also get access to all of The Lever's premium content, so you'll directly be supporting independent journalism. And again, that is all for just $8 a month, which is a third of a Netflix account, okay? You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar if you just... uh want to say thanks and you loved a particular episode again all of that info is at mvcpod.com you can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player only takes a few seconds it's very helpful boosts the algorithm so that more people can find the show and we really appreciate it so thank you thank you so much all right let's go to our conversation with brian morbido on zoolander hey everyone we know that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is at the forefront of everyone's minds right now. So we wanted to take a moment and share some resources with our listeners on how you can help. You can go to ceasefiretoday.com, which has a list of resources for actions to demand a ceasefire from our Congress people. You can send them mass emails. You can sign a petition. You can find a protest. You can phone bank. They have a call script that will allow you to easily call all of your Congress people. Again, that is ceasefiretoday.com. And remember, the only way forward is addressing the root causes of violence, Israeli military occupation and apartheid, and ending U.S. complicity in this oppression. I know it feels like this crisis is really insurmountable right now, but the more we call our Congress people, the more we show up at marches, the more we do anything and everything will help. So, so keep at it. If we all do this together, we can actually move the needle. Love you all. Solidarity. And stay safe. Today, we are joined by Brian Morabito. Brian is an actor and comedian in New York, best known for narrating paintings on the internet. He is the creator and host of New York's longest-running environmental drinking show, Drunk Planet Earth, and has been a principal performer on UCB House Team since 2019. If you don't like this episode, you can kill him in Grand Theft Auto V, where he voices a billionaire who stole an NFT from Dr. Dre. What? <laughs> Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much. Wait, you're really, you're in Grand Theft Auto V? I am in Grand Theft Auto V, yeah. As I, I, my character is a billionaire who stole an NFT of unreleased Dr. Dre's music. And one of the missions is you need to go to my billionaire mansion, find me, and then chase me in my helicopter, shoot down my helicopter, and then kill me on the beach. Damn, this is like a big mission for, for your character. 
Yeah, yeah, it was pretty big. Yeah, and Rockstar is very cool, but they're also a very scary company. Yeah, they're they're a very uh, litigious company, for justifiably. I I love them, uh, no no exception. I love the work that they do, um, and I, I I genuinely do. But I had a friend who had had just done some recording that I knew for them, and uh, this was just after quarantine and lockdown stuff like that. So he had just finished and he took a selfie of himself in the booth with all the TV screens off. Nobody else was there. And he posted it. Didn't say anything in any caption. He was just like, so excited. I can't say anything. Blah, 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 whatever. And then we took a 50 milligram edible uh, because uh -huh. uh, it was uh, flag day. And then 45 minutes later, his agent texted him and was like, yikes, that post, they're going to fire you. How could you do this? And he was on a fucking rocket ship being like, no, but you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta protect the brand. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> now they'll know. Well, now, now we're not going to be forwarding this to them, but they're very cool. Very nice. Uh, but yeah, they are, they are intense about that stuff. <laughs> very cool. Very nice. Incredibly secretive. They will destroy your career. Really scary. Really scary. They have mm -hmm. a lot of resources. They know. But Brian, I'm you're at. probably good at that. You're a great improviser. You run a show called And Scene, which I was lucky to be in, where you have actors do a scene where we learn the hardest thing I've ever done. You have to learn the lines without learning your partner's lines. And then an improviser comes in and improvises those lines. I had a heartbeat. How It was really hard, but it was really <laughs> fun. But it was, I got to tell you, quite a challenge. <laughs> You were so, so good. Yeah, that's why I chose this to banter about, Brian. I was like, tell them all how good I was. <laughs> yeah, not fishing. <laughs> Took long enough. Um, <laughs> no, this is a show that my wife, I, she's a fiance, but you know, I don't want. It's so I was going to say, when did you guys tie yeah, the knot? Wow. I didn't realize you had already done it. <laughs> we didn't. Um, but okay. I, don't, I don't like saying, <laughs> I don't like saying fiance. So I'm, I usually say partner, but there's something very patriotic about calling her my wife. But she, so this is a show that she produces and she hosts and... Like Riv said, you know, we get actors and we assign them a scene and they prepare it and perform it as they normally would, but then they're paired with experienced improvisers who know nothing. And it is so, so fun, but it is so funny how, like, these actors who are serious, really talented, like Riv, like plenty of friends who are on Broadway and TVs, real, real legit people, are so scared when they do the show. <laughs> they are so, so scared. Because, you know, normally when, you know, you're you're learning lines, you're learning based off like the event of the scene or everything you do and everything you say is a reaction on what somebody just said or did. And that is totally out the window. And it's so funny to see the scenes that are most successful are the ones where they're not trying to stick to what the plot of that scene or that show was, right? You're making a new thing with this person here. So it's a real fun thing and it's a, it's a gift to the actors because it's like this is the this is the only glimpse you can have of what it's like to be a very very senior experienced improviser you know what i mean because like they can respond non verbally to the scene but it is like active intense listening you mm -hmm. know um based on what's in front of you in this moment and there's the added thing of like oh i know that person from tv or this is about you know what i mean cuz sure. you know improv can be punishing um, but, uh, you know, these are people who are very good at it with the added bonus of, you know, when you see Zach Cherry from Severance, he's the guy with the glasses on Severance, um, has done the show three times and he's such, such a talented improviser. And tell the people when and where, Brian. Uh, thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, it's at Caveat Theater on the Lower East Side and it is usually the third Monday 
uh, of every month. The next one, I believe, will be November 18th. And the last thing before we get into our movie conversation, the last thing I'll say is that we know Brian because we all went to theater school together in Pittsburgh. So Absolutely. this is a, re a reunion of sorts. But let's dive into it because, Brian, you picked um, a movie I was so thrilled to see come over the line. You chose the 2001 comedy Zoolander, the cult classic, directed Man. by Ben Stiller, written by Ben Stiller and Drake Sather and John Hamburg, starring Stiller, Christine Taylor, Owen Wilson, Will Ferrell, Jerry Stiller, and Mila Jovovich. The budget was $28 million and it only made $60 million worldwide. And we will get into a little bit about why it flopped. Well, it wasn't really a flop, but why it didn't do as well as people thought it was going to. Um, in case you've never seen the movie or haven't seen it in a while, set in the world of high fashion and supermodeling, the film tells the story of dim-witted yet really, really ridiculously good-looking male model superstar Derek Zoolander, played by Ben Stiller, whose career is on the decline with the rise of rival male model Hansel, played by Owen Wilson. As Derek's star wanes, the fashion industry's top brass, led by the eccentric designer Mugatu, played by Will Ferrell, hatch a plan to brainwash Derek into assassinating the prime minister of Malaysia, who is on the brink of ending child labor and poverty wages for textile workers in his country. With help from investigative journalist Matilda Jeffries, Christine Taylor, Derek tries to unravel the diabolical plot before he unwittingly commits the assassination. What and that's Zoolander, plot. baby. That is Zoolander. There it is. And so for some context, Brian, for when this film was released, in case you forgot all about the year 2001, it was released on September 28th of that year. George W. Bush is beginning his first term as president. In January, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission approves the merger of America Online and Time Warner to form AOL, Time Warner. In March, the Bush administration withdraws U.S. support for the 1997 Kyoto Protocol on the reduction of greenhouse gases. Yay. Cool. In April, the musical The Producers by Mel Brooks, starring Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, opens on Broadway at the St. James Theater. In June, the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001 is signed into law by George Bush, and it's the first of a series of acts which becomes known as the Bush Tax Cuts. And then on September 10th, Donald Rumsfeld gives a speech regarding $2.3 trillion in Pentagon spending that cannot be accounted for, identifying the bureaucratic processes of the Pentagon as the biggest threat to America. I bet he's about to rein in all that spending. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, on September 11th, the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon two weeks prior to this film coming out in theaters. So, Brian, the first thing we ask our guest is, why did you choose this movie to watch on this podcast? Uh, the stranglehold that this movie had on me was like a, a sleep paralysis demon for 22 and a half years. Uh, it was un an unbreakable bond from when I first saw it, when it first came out. I mean, only up until a couple years ago when Zoolander 2 came out. And I accidentally snuck into the premiere party for uh, Zoolander. <laughs> you accidentally snuck in. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was that was fucking insane. Yeah, I mean, so the the time I was at the the premiere party was basically I was in a bad mood one day, and I uh, I had just finished. I was like training, and I was teaching at this you know martial arts studio, and so I was like really sweaty, and I had my gym bag, and I was like, you know what? I just want to like 
I want to hurt. You know what I mean? I don't know sometimes if you're in a bad mood in college, you ever smoked a cigarette or you ate bad food, but I was like, I'm going to go to White Castle. And so I went to the White Castle. Hell yeah. Was, it was on 8th Avenue. And I, um, I went in, it was totally empty. I ordered some and I sat down. And then a couple minutes later, this guy bursts in the door. He's in all leather. His eyes are totally blacked out with eyeliner. Then he orders whatever. And he's like looking around. He's like, where is everybody? And then he goes and he, I am at a single booth. You know what I mean? One of those at White Castle where they're like, we know you're here to eat alone. And he uh -huh, goes uh -huh, and uh -huh. he sits down across from me in a totally empty restaurant. And he says his name is Kevin and he's a famous hair and makeup designer. And so he's just sitting there talking to me for 45 minutes to an hour, telling me insane lies constantly, but I'm not, you know, what, what am I doing? I was supposed to meet up with my friend Julie to go see a show. And I was like, Julie, you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting held up, whatever. And she's like, don't worry about it. Look behind you. I turn around and Julie is pretending to read a catcher in the rye in a booth, <laughs> a couple of booths over. We're the only people in here. So I was like, Julie, come on over. This is my friend, uh, Kevin, whatever. And he's like, you guys have to come to this party later. There are all these models. They would love to sleep with you. Sofia Vergara would love to sleep with you. And so he's like, you have to have to come to this party at the Jane Hotel. We leave. Julie and I see the show. After our show, I was like, how are you feeling about that Jane Hotel thing? She's like, we got to go. So we walk there. And as we're walking, we realize we don't know anything about this. We don't know where it is. We don't know what to say. And as we're talking, the bouncer at the Jane Hotel is like, you guys here for the Zoolander party? And we were like, yeah. And so we go in an elevator. It's like, it's upstairs. We go in an elevator behind this group of models. And again, I am still covered in, I am in a tank top. I have, I'm, I'm wearing Timberlands. You know what I mean? Julie, of course, like in a hoodie, whatever. We go up, elevator doors open. They let the models in. And I guess they just assume we're with that group. And we look around and we see Aziz Ansari. And we see Jennifer Aniston and Justin Theroux and Ben Stiller and all these people at the rooftop of the Jane Hotel. And we were like, we are not leaving until we are the last people here or we're kicked out. And <laughs> we didn't get kicked huh? out. We stayed the whole night. We danced, it was an open bar. We like, you know, put our stuff wow. down on the couch because, you know, no one's stealing my stuff here. And um, we just happened on this Zoolander 2 party and it was fucking incredible. It was so fun. Wow. Wow. What a New York story. And, and accurate, you did accidentally sneak in. Okay, so that's, first of all, incredible. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I don't think we need to do any more podcasts. I think that was it. So what was it like revisiting? I'm assuming, did you rewatch it for oh, yeah. for this? So what was your experience, and Riv, I'll ask you as well, um, what was your experience rewatching it now? My experience rewatching it, I, it was really colored by my more recent opinions about or I guess exposure to stuff about Ben Stiller. And that really happens to me a lot now with media where I'm like, I just can't separate, even if it was a thing that I loved, you know what I mean? I can't separate it when I learn something about an actor or somebody who's involved, I'm just looking at them and I'm like, I don't like you anymore. Oh, or sure. you know, in, or maybe like uh, just a little suspicion where it takes me out of it yeah. a little bit. Wait, what what is yeah, the Ben Stiller it? stuff? I don't actually I'm Nothing not I'm super unaware. salacious, just about like, you know, he is a, a Nepo baby, you know, Jerry Stiller got him in the industry and then, you know, he's one of those people who is like you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and straps and we're like, ah, "Ben, I don't, I don't know about that." And uh, what really I think distracted me more than anything was uh, my wife that we were talking about earlier 
Um, she was a model for 11 years and I really had a different and wrong perception of what models were like. And I think a lot of people shared and maybe still share that perception. And a lot of it, I think, was driven by stuff like this and this movie in particular. You know what I mean? There mm -hmm. are certainly vapid people and stupid people everywhere. But, you know, there's this kind of image that models, especially, you know, female identifying models uh, that are these like pretty stuck up girls. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? They're like really rich and they're really bitchy and they're really superficial. Mm. And it wasn't till I started, you know, dating my partner that I learned what the life is really like as a model. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, these are so often 15 and 16 year old girls who either moved to the city and are scouted and are here. Yeah. And uh, there are these really, really predatory um, promoters mm -hmm. that really take advantage of these young women who are like, hey, we'll give you a free dinner. But before you can go to the dinner, you have to come to the club mm -hmm. and you got to come to the club for a certain amount of time. And so I think that really lent itself to like, oh, these aren't like mean, bitchy, stuck up women. These are just like hungry girls that <laughs> these horny guys in clubs are trying to hit on, try and, you know what I mean, talk yeah. to. And they're just like, I just want dinner. You know, I don't have another job. This is where my money is coming from. I need a free meal. And even in the movie in Zoolander, they depict the model apartment, which is a very common thing. Agencies will put up models in what's called a model apartment where they group them together uh, in a living space. That's like a friend's level, you know what I mean? Beautiful, big daddy. Where is this apartment in New York City? You right. know, uh, sure. gorgeous, gorgeous space. And the reality of model apartments is like, it's not a free space. The rent is taken out of their paychecks um, and they are dilapidated they're not taken care of they're crammed in there all together everything is broken uh like really really gross sad situations for these girls who are trying to work you know I, I didn't even realize in modeling anytime you see somebody on a runway show that's like in paris or whatever they're they're paying for their room and board they pay for the flight they're not like wow. unless you are super super famous it's an industry where they cannot unionize they have no wow. they have no representation and no bargaining power because it's like there is certainly a skill to it, which is essentially making photographers think that they are not the no photographers talented, but making the photographer <laughs> feel like that they are the one who is in control and coming up with these beautiful, you know, right. images and poses and dynamic, you know, being creative in that way. But you can go to a high school. You can go, you can find a 17 year old, an 18 year old beautiful girl and be like, hey, you want to make five thousand dollars and I'll yeah. put you on the cover or something Ugh. so it's pretty easy it's to... unbelievably exploitative yeah 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 so i think that really colored my rewatching of the movie of mm -hmm. like oh this is like it's aping it's making fun of the people who are the victims and it's also like you know mugatu and the bookers and these people are bad and capitalists and all that and even maury ballstein played by Jerry Stiller, was supposed to be an homage, I think, to Harvey Weinstein. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, you, you know, you see him, you know, grabbing ass in the hallway. Right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's like, yeah, we're making fun of those Toshi people. Squeeze. But really, <laughs> yeah. But the butt of the joke is always how stupid are these models? Yeah. And to me, I was like, yeah, that's a shame because these are these are like kids a lot of time who are, you know, just people trying to make money. Yeah, I think all of that absolutely tracks. There was a lot. Um, and thank you for sharing that. I, 
I learned a lot. I didn't know that the, I guess I never thought about it, but, if, but yeah, there's no unions for models, which is so awful. Yeah, because they can't withhold the labor. So in so many of these jobs, you know, even asking for a bathroom break on these eight hour, you're standing for eight hours in, mm. on concrete in prototype heels. And, you know, Mick would tell me stories of like, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And they're like, now's not a good time. You know what I mean? They just really treat you like a living mannequin. And yeah. Yeah, everything yeah. you ask for or need is a burden. Which tells us so much psychologically about, you know, again, the role that narcissism plays inside of capitalism, that we are fed this idea that it is some kind of, that somehow it's enough to be witnessed and seen. And that ideology, which is used for actors too, right? Of like, you're being, you're being seen, you're getting um, paid through exposure, right? That you're mm -hmm. getting paid through exposure, that's going to build your career, but also just like, don't you want to just like, you must be a model because you want to be seen. And I think that's playing on this, right? You must be a model because you're vain, because there's yeah. something that you're getting from the narcissism of it, narcissism of it, which I think actors get as well. But I think that's important because it, it's another one of those subtle ways in which we forget the actual economy. If you took out models from this economy, you weren't, you wouldn't be selling shit. I mean, think about how much shit is sold to you just by like, we interact with that so much and those are human beings and it, it just all adds to the project of separating us from the understanding of like the humanity and the laborers and the workers and making it just seem like this thing that like everybody wants to participate in this economy in this way because they're actually getting something that's better than healthcare or food. Absolutely. I mean, and there are so many, there's so many insane, on top of that, Models are sometimes not paid in money. Sometimes they're paid in clothes. And <laughs> they're often paid in just like, oh, well, this is the equivalent of however many hundred dollars. But there'll be clothes that they can't wear. There'll be sizes that can't be sold or that they have in surplus that the person doesn't fit the person. Right. And they don't get to choose. And another thing that came to mind watching this movie was, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but Zoolander, this character before the movie was actually Ben Stiller made it up for New York Fashion Week for a sketch for New York Fashion Week. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, which is just Fashion Week is famous. I don't know if you guys saw um, Triangle of Sadness. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about it on the pod. Triangle of Sadness, as I'm sure you'll remember, the whole scene uh, of the runway show uh, on Fashion Week is so so accurate of like the climate is dying don't you care and <laughs> meanwhile the fashion industry is one of the top contributors you know what i mean to yeah. pollution and all this waste of like thrown out garments stuff like that so it just seems a little mean-spirited that like wait a minute and i know the 90s were a different time or early 2000s you know when this came out and we're viewing it through a different lens but looking back you're just like wait a minute so the joke you did wasn't like, again, for the models and for the people working, laughing, you were like, I am going to be the, you know, dumb model a, for everybody here to yeah. laugh at. I'm the dumb guy. I am all of you. And so who's really laughing there? Whoever it's going to be, the mm -hmm. buyers, the designers, or the famous people who are there to watch the fashion show. But you are, again, making fun of the people who are working insane hours, have no benefits, have no control. Oftentimes, you know, they're in, in cases where these companies, again, will like claim bankruptcy. 
uh, that's why you need an agency because they'll try and not pay you really, really hard. They will often yeah, yeah. as a model try to not pay you. And the only reason you really need an agent is to have somebody go after them and get your money. And then mm -hmm. the agency is taking 20%. Uh, and then these are really, really predatory contracts, modeling contracts to begin with. Any likeness that you have, anything that you create anytime in the future, you know what I mean? These are just crazy because, again, they don't have a union. Well, this is kind of, I feel like, part and parcel of a lot of the conversation that was happening, especially at the beginning of the writer's strike and the actor's strike, where you would hear like the sentiment from the broader public of, oh, why are these writers and actors complaining? They make so much money. What a glamorous lifestyle. They, like, they barely, acting isn't even real labor. It's not work. And mm -hmm. I think, I think like, I think this is such an important point where like any, especially in like creative industries, yes, someone's not working on an assembly line with a hammer, but you're right. Like standing in high heels in front of hot lights and like holding your body and like posing and like nailing it every time and not being able to pee and, you know, all, like, and, you know, sitting in a makeup chair, going through costume changes, all of like the, the, the dieting and the exercise and the everything, all that is so much work. And it's, it's an important thing to highlight that there is like every kind of, any kind of labor that is creating some sort of value. Like Rivka, you're saying like, if models don't exist, we don't have advertisements where people wear clothes or like sit on bicycles or whatever. Like they are creating so much value for these companies. And you're right. It's, it's such a shame that they don't have a union. I, I have to imagine it would just be like a Herculean organizing effort I, mm -hmm. that my my base assumption, but yeah, it'd be really cool to see the the modeling industry organize in the next, in the coming decades. I mean, even beyond, one step perhaps beyond that too is like, your value is not derived from your job in society. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. like you have, this is still a person. And, you know, just because you don't like that job or you don't think it's a, a hard job or there are harder jobs out there. And again, it's physically demanding. It's emotionally demanding uh, for how you're treated. They are, I mean, it is, it is unconscionable the things they say, especially to these young women, but to young men as mm. well. And that's not even talking about the common and continuing practice of sexual predators in positions of power yeah. if you want to book certain campaigns well if you want to you have to be willing to sleep with this guy and these are just you know now there are more groups than there were of outing these people or conversations of like hey be careful of this person um or this person's a predator but there's no accountability for any of those people you know I, it's so it's so funny to hear and the conversation is dead now which is also so horrifying to think about but a little after Me Too started, there were all those conversations about, is it going too far? <laughs> has, has Me Too gone too far? And it's like, you know, we've arrested two people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there was yeah. Harvey Weinstein. And then there was that woman on Supernatural who was involved in the sex trafficking ring. <laughs> and then it was like. Nexium, <laughs> yeah. Allison Mack. Yeah. Oh, and, and then, you know, Bill Cosby. But <laughs> then he was out. And then he was whatever. And it's just like, guys. I think we've we've kind of done it. You know what I mean? We, yeah. we got them it's all. It's a little much now. Calm down. Yeah. I think we fixed sexual predation. <laughs> yeah. Like, full and stop. And so it's like, of course, in corporate America and all these places, still rampant. But like, even where the spotlight was, you know, in the entertainment industry, still incredibly, incredibly prevalent. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think there is that focus anymore 
like there really used to be in the 2000s where what was her name jennifer uh, no simpson something simpson jessica jessica simpson jessica simpson i remember people were like tearing her apart limb from limb for being like oh stupid bimbo oh now she's fat oh no she's it's like Mm -hmm. jesus christ absolutely yeah brutal ruthless celebrity culture in that early part of the 2000s for sure Yeah. yeah and it was just the normalization of well, you're famous, so your life is easy, you know. And um, there's definitely, there's definitely privilege in being the in the limelight, but it's also just that whole thing of like, I don't know, the dehumanization of these people who are actually people. You know what I mean? Who like see what you say, and then you know, younger kids who are hearing that and seeing that, or normalizing that, or feeling bad about themselves. Um, it's 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 nuts and it's you know perpetuated in different insidious ways with like you know marvel and superheroes and every guy who now wants to be in shape or feel good about themselves well you got to look like that and um you know i do think there is now a much more normalized pushback to that when you have like rob McElhaney, the guy who created is on always sunny he got absolutely just goofed up for one season of that show he got so buff it was it was just fucking nasty <laughs> he looks great but he had a whole thing about you know yeah i don't know why everybody doesn't do this you know all all it takes is you know training three times a day a personal trainer a personal chef a dedicated studio <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars like this is totally a and a lot of drugs yeah and a lot of drugs <laughs> and the drug thing too sorry to rant so long but like <laughs> i just feel like i don't know it's not the end of the it's not bad if you want to get Botox, if you want to get a facelift, if you want to take steroids. But there is something bad about being like a natural baby. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you are just like plastic. Yeah. This costs nothing. This is free. Yeah. And if you don't look like this, there's something wrong with you. It's not that you can't You're afford. just not trying, sweetheart. You're just not meant for the limelight. And it's like you're not ugly, you're poor. You know what I mean? Yeah. So God. if you want to be on if you want to do those things, just like being honest about what it is and what you're doing. If you're a gym rat and you want to get huge, get huge. Like, no judgment there. That's awesome. I wanted to jump in and ask, uh, maybe unpack something with you too. Because I was trying to figure out, I was like, there's something here that I was picking up on on this rewatch. And it has to do with sort of what I was, what I think we were learning about America's relationship to the rest of the world. And, you know, the fact that we were getting on the internet and I was, you know, this was a 2001 was like a big pivotal year just for me, not for anyone else. But, you know, (laughs) I happened to be in New York for 9-11, the only one. But it was, I was just like also. I I was in New Jersey, (laughs) but, you know. Very young. There were just so many pivotal things. And then the the fact that we were also AOL, the internet expanded our relationship to the rest of the world and how accessible our global relations were in that sense. And this film and sort of Austin Powers just dawned on me how comic like cartoonish it sort of made the international the international characters are and like the film oh, yeah. starts with this international syndicate of fashion designers and it just occurred to me I was like where is this going so I wa- I was watching it carefully the whole time recognizing that there's a very clear like we obviously, even though Derek Zoolander is 
<laughs> what do they call him? Uh, a beautiful, self-absorbed simpleton who can be manipulated and molded like jello. Even though he's all these things, we love him. And there's this odd thing that as you're listening to Zoolander, clearly it wasn't like this at the time, although Donald Trump is in this movie. People, when they do their Trump impressions, if they're not like really, really good, you're like, are you doing Zoolander or Trump? Okay, I'm piecing this all together. Go with me. Okay. Something about this like sweet, dumb character who is sort of going to be the assassin, doesn't mean to be, can be easily manipulated, there was this, like, represents the U.S. There's, like, a very, like, U.S. versus the international enemies here. And then at the end of the film, the um, president of Malaysia says, thank you, Derek Zoolander, for saving my life. Zoolander wasn't even thinking about that. But you're, like, very clearly somehow in that I was like, oh, America wins. Like, that was the message that I got through this convoluted, you know, I was like, America wins. And Interesting. Then also, Matilda, who we're, we're following, is, like, the smart journalist who ends up you know, falling in love with Zoolander and her journey's fascinating. We'll get more into it. But in this moment between her and Katinka, who's very much um, the Russian, like our, like the Russian evil character. Model slash hit woman. Yeah, model slash hit woman. <laughs> um, and she keeps calling Matilda Kmart. And at the end, she's like, no, I'm JC Penny. And as I was trying to figure out, like, what is the political messaging of this movie two weeks after 9-11, there was just something so something there that I want to see if maybe you can help me, like, clarify. But there was this, like, international community bad, America good, America dumb, but America good, international community smart, but evil. Am I on to something? You're you're on to something, but I had kind of like the inverse read okay. on this okay. where, like, I, this is the first time I realized it on this rewatch. I'm, and I should say, high school, college, this was like a movie that was just on in the background all the time. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't remember when it became a cult classic, but at some point someone was like, yo, Zoolander actually one of the best comedies of the 21st century. Like, if anything, if anything, <laughs> like, preceded the, like, like was the harbinger for the Judd Apatow revolution of comedy in the early 2000s. Wow, revolution um, of comedy. I mean, whatever you want to call it, like you just like, <laughs> sure. That's maybe that that's maybe a, a, a sensationalist no, terminology. It's, uh, it's it's been said, Frank. The Judd Apatow takeover of comedy, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I remember because I remember seeing this movie two weeks after nine eleven in and by myself in a movie theater as a little fucking thirteen wow. year old boy, and I remember just like. I remember not being able to register any of the comedy because I was just like, I'm pretty sure there's some really terrible things happening in the world right now. And it just like mm. was completely lost on me in that moment. But my read on it in this rewatch was that this is actually a pretty, and there are problematic stuff in this movie for sure, but this is like a pretty good allegory for like U.S. intervention in international communities mm. to protect U.S. financial interests. Mm. because that's at the core what is happening like and and i thought it was actually smart and good that they were like the movie opens with like the, the malaysia has elected this new prime minister and he's going to end child labor and end poverty wages like this is a good this is like an objectively good thing smash cut to the fashion syndicate just like well we have to kill this guy because this is going to eat into our profits so mm -hmm. like who are we going to find to kill this guy and i thought that was like 
that's a tried and true story trope, you know, like evil, evil U.S. company or evil U.S. government agency, usually like the CIA or the FBI is like, hey, we got some financial interests in this other country. Uh, we should probably, you know, kill some people over there or overthrow their government just to protect our financial interests. So mm -hmm. I thought like as sort of like the linchpin of the, the plot of this movie, I thought that was pretty strong. And look, and it's not like the most perfect, uh, it's not the most perfect execution in terms of like, you know, nuance or or thoughtfulness. And they, you know, they have a lot of fun mispronouncing the, the name of the country, Malaysia, which watching it today, I'm like, mm, that's kind of just like, like dumb racist humor. But yeah. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I was happy to see that as sort of like the central linchpin of the plot, essentially. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I have to contribute to this uh, <laughs> is that... I saw somewhere that Zoolander might still be banned in, in Malaysia. Malaysia. In Malaysia. Oh, wow. But you can't watch it. Um, but it is, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, that is such a, a common and real thing, especially for our country when there's like for, you know, moneyed interests abroad that are being um, messed with. That way, I don't know if you've seen that clip of some like former CIA higher up director who's being interviewed and uh, the interviewer was like oh well you know the united states you know was never involved in any coups and the guy was like well you know i don't know about that like, oh, okay but like we don't do that stuff anymore and he's like well i wouldn't say we don't you know what i mean do it was that the one with john bolton from like earlier this year oh it might have been I, he's like i have i have helped plan a coup d'etat let me tell you it it is not that easy okay <laughs> yeah give me Trust give me, me some credit please but like i don't know it's just like Right now, there is a uh, a strike going on for garment workers, I think, in Bangladesh for, yes. you know, that affects like H&M and Zara and all these people that use laborers that are paid, you know, sublivable wages in another country to produce massive amounts of clothing that are just, you know, it's fast fashion. Yeah, it's it's real. It's happening right now. So I think, you know, in that way, the movie is still very pre it holds up really well you yeah. know in terms of like it's it's relevance in the in the messaging i just want to push back because i i hear you that was my initial first was like oh this was here i don't necessarily remember that and then i was like is that was that is that part of the danger is this would mm -hmm. this fall under like um capitalist realism in the most dangerous sense that they yeah they say sweatshops they say this the bad guys are this but at the end of the day you don't even just like zoolander doesn't remember like why he's being thanked, we kind of end up being like, wait, what are you talking about? We don't remember by the end of the film what it was about anyways, because it really becomes about Zoolander's journey. And the real win is that Zoolander gets a center for kids who can't read good. You know, like there is something yeah. fascinating with this genre of film, like because the 2000s had also Austin Powers was clearly a big influence on this. And I think a big influence on um ben stiller was talking about like one of the reasons he wanted to make this film was because of the austin power series and that international man of mystery and there's just something i don't know i feel like that was something i got in a really bad way like as a teen from this was just a very glossy over like oh we're saying sweatshops so like it's fine mm -hmm. you know there's just some kind of normalization thing that's happening here that i didn't feel like I could give it the merit that I wanted to. You know what I mean? Like, I felt sus suspicious. I, that's fair. It's not the most uh, intellectual vehicle for this message, for this political message of like, 
financial interests will commit violence to protect their financial interests. So like, you're right. It is a very zany off the walls comment. So it's not the best vehicle. It's not like a Josie and the Pussycats, which just like nails the satire and the messaging from top to bottom and is just like completely ingrained in every part of the storytelling. And is a lot more violent. Josie and the Pussycats yeah. actually had a lot more violence. Like this was very, I don't know. Again, I still think there's something dangerous about it and I can't quite but put my finger on it. there's something I think that's really effective too because just like, I mean, Trump has got to be one of, if not the funniest presidents we've ever had. I mean, he's evil. Well, hands down. But he's so fucking funny. And there is something about being able to be funny that you can really, it's so much more effective in getting your message across uh, to people who disagree with you, as opposed to yelling facts at them, as opposed to showing them the horrors of whatever, you know, you find really compelling. And so I think there is something important and good. And it's like, no, this movie was not going to show the real visceral reality of what's going on. And it's not going to be like, we solved the problem. You know, I think it's good in a way to be like, hey, we saved this one guy and we helped these kids, but structurally nothing changes. You know what I mean? Like he's still in the modeling industry. Those people are not taken down who are like the shadowy people. And you think that's good? Is that what you're saying, Brian? I, I I think it's you know yeah I think it's good. I think let's it's, make this you know. Zoolander convo spicy. <laughs> but I think it's good. You like that? Yeah, I'm pro that. <laughs> you're a, you're against systemic change. You I'm only want. I'm so sick of this upcycling bullshit. Just give me a fucking diamond T-shirt I can wear once. Um, and but uh, no, I mean I think it's good because it at least brings in the conversation of like. Oh, yeah. You know, like people are greedy. You know what I mean? Like it is lampooning the United States government or, you know, companies like Chevron who do horrible things abroad in the name of their capital. You know what I mean? And so like the movie didn't yeah. solve anything, but at least it like affirms that like, hey, guys, this is happening. You know what I mean? And bringing that into the consciousness, because even if it's not perfect or if it doesn't solve it, it is something where before that, you know, there was nothing does it not in some ways serve this bigger picture of we said it we gently lampooned it but ultimately no one's gonna care and if we sold you a zoolander t-shirt and merch you would go and buy it and not think once about who made it like isn't sure. isn't in that 100%. sense it's actually more it's like to me it's more dangerous when you do isn't that in some ways more insidious like i don't know mm -hmm. that anyone's leaving like yeah. i really i never heard about sweatshops before like i think Amer i think it's priming <laughs> the american audience of like oh yeah but this is something that evil internationalists do and then but there's really like mm -hmm. a heart of gold at the heart of like our intentions I don't know. Mm. I just, I just, I, again, I love this movie. It was just so a part of the yes. fabric of my makeup that I'm just thinking through this lens critically about like, what did this do to me? I think that totally makes sense. But you also have to understand that so much of this audience and so much of the people who loved it, I think I was in the fifth grade, you know, so I don't know that I knew about sweatshops. And I, I left. And the did movie you leave? Being... Was that your takeaway? 
as a fifth grader? Yeah, and that's really? that's what started me on my journey. Uh, that no, was that was bigger like, than orange mocha frappuccino. I'm I'm <laughs> the, I don't mean to grill you, Brian, no, but I no, just feel do. feisty about Zoolander suddenly. No, but I think I think both of those you can hold both of those to be true. Where at the end of the day, I left and like that's a funny movie. I want to be Derek Zoolander. Look, I can do the face too. But in the back of my mind, it's like the base reality of the movie is Mugatu is evil. The base reality of the movie is these people who are controlling Derek are bad. And the guys who are good are the, you know, Matilda is really like the grounded straight person in the movie. You know what I mean? Or you have right. even. But you just said exactly my point. Like Mugatu's yes. bad. We get caught up in all that. And I think at the end of the day, it's like we intentionally forget about the real. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I'm actually yeah. saying I think it's probably more dangerous than not. And I love this movie. I, I hear you. And actually, in, in discussing this right now, I'm realizing that, like, I totally forgot that this part of the plot. Like, like it was, whenever I think of Zoolander, I wasn't like, oh, that's right. That movie about the model who, like, unravels an international conspiracy to, like, overthrow a, a government of another country. Like, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. So I think you're I think you're partially right. I think both are right. Mm -hmm. I think both. Oh, wow. Strong take. <laughs> Frank. Good people on both sides. Good, good people on both sides. No, but I... And we're just going to take that soundbite. <laughs> just that clip and put it out. But I, I, I genuinely do. I do think I do see merits in what both of you are saying. I think in that, like, I think it's valuable to have. Uh, and we've talked about this before on the show. Like, I think it's valuable to have stories like this or like plot threads like this in popular culture. Because I would rather they exist rather than not exist. Conversely... Uh, this 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 can fall into the the realm of like the performative anti capitalism or the performative societal critique, which can give the audience the feeling of like, oh wow, you know, Derek Zoolander beat those guys. Everything must be good now. Um, Even if Zoolander doesn't remember what he was fighting for, <laughs> doesn't remember what he was fighting for. So what I hear you saying, Frank, is that moisture is the essence of wetness, and wetness is wetness the essence is of the essence of beauty. beauty. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Man, the cameos yeah. in this movie, though, were shocking. On top of Donald Every Trump. Every single person. But, like, I don't think, Vin does Vince Vaughn have a line? It's No, it's Vince, crazy. yeah, did not even have a line. And that was Judah Freelander as the other brother. I did not oh, recognize really? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spice Girls, Spice Fabio. Girls, Cuba Gooding Jr., Natalie Portman. Um, um, I actually looked, looked up, I was like, how did they get Tom Ford... Tommy Hilfiger, I was like, how did they get all these people on the red carpet? They actually shot those opening scenes at the actual 2000 VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards. Oh my! So they were just like someone. They just had like like another unit direct, like another unit team on the red carpet, being like, "Hey, we're shooting for a movie Zoolander. Can you guys just pretend like you know this uh, this famous model Zoolander?" This is another reason, is actually, it made me think of like why there might be potential not great things about how this was done. Just mm -hmm. to keep going with this, is that. Yeah, yeah. If t like if Tommy oh. Hilfiger's in, we had so many celebrities in this. It almost yeah. felt like, well, I was in that movie where the bad guy was the person who you know who was trying to stop the wage increases for children making clothing. But like, dude, you're doing that in real life. Like you're you, you know, and I yeah. think it becomes this yeah. cover. This yeah. is like a PR campaign, like greenwashing. Yeah, this was not an A twenty four profit sharing movie in two thousand one. You know what I mean? Like this was still like. But I mean, like this kind of media plays that role. I think so. People can be like, it had a good message, and you're like, but you're gonna go out and do your same shit and then yeah. feel good because it had a good message. Very liberal. Yeah, I, I I will say though that it's like 
I am very much for, you know, I had been saying in my life recently that things are going very well in my life. And I'm at a point right now where like things are really going to start clicking and coming together in a really great and exciting way, or I'm going to fight a cop. And I really feel like it's like one of these two, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's just like so, so close. Why can't they be the, yeah, why, why can't, can't they, both they be, both? be the same? Yeah. Please. I wish I lived in a dreamland. <laughs> I wish I lived in your little gorgeous utopia, Frank. <laughs> your A24 film. <laughs> yeah. But it's just to say, I don't know. I, I, I lost the train of thought there. Who cares? But um, <laughs> I oh, will. So, oh, yeah. So it's just to say, like, I am somebody who is like, yeah, let's press these people. I am. I'm I'm left of Mao. I'm very, very progressive. But you also I think there is a danger in viewing every piece of media or every part of our lives, especially from pieces of media that came out before we had more of a social consciousness or a social awareness of, you know, people's rights you know that to think too critically about you know the type of media or art that was made it's an interesting exercise but i don't think it devalues you know what those things were and and what what is the danger well the danger is that like of course everything made in the 2000s or in the 90s is not going to align with at least my political sensibilities you know, um, I I didn't at the time. And my, my favorite war criminal, Barack Obama, used to say the woke <laughs> need to leave room for the waking. And he was absolutely right, where it's like in an argument, you can either go to somebody and be like, you are fucking stupid, pig headed. You are voting against your own interests, so on and so forth. But it's like there was a time when I didn't know these things. And what what's my goal here to help more people to help the planet and what is the means to do that? Well, it, it's not to be combative every time. There are times when we need to fight. Um, but I think there are also times where we need to give some grace to people's ignorance because you don't know stuff until you know it. And also the enjoyment in your life where it's like, this is something, this is a piece of art that brought you joy. And every it's your choice. It's our choice. But like, you know, we will be poorer for it in our lives if, you know, I had this moment in college and, you know, we all went to school together. There, especially freshman year, I didn't go to a performing arts high school and we show up and there was a class where you're in a, a, a leotard or a unitard and you have a scarf around your waist and we're walking around the room and we're going, we must all be very kind to one another. <laughs> this is not an exaggeration. This is literally what we did. $200,000. Can can confirm. Yep, we did this. And I had, most of my freshman year, I was like furious. I was like, this is a fucking waste of time. I should leave and I should become a park ranger. And this is dumb. And it took me a long time to realize that it's like, you don't win anything by being the grumpiest guy in the room, by having the worst time there. You know what I mean? And you actually stop yourself from getting any value out of so many experiences by shutting yourself off and focusing on oh, really only, and this is for me, but like only what's wrong, only what's stupid about this. Uh, and it's really a mechanism to keep yourself emotionally distant and emotionally safe. So I think your criticisms are absolutely valid. But I also think the the danger, which was your question, is that, you know, we may lose sight of the fun or enjoyment in art and in imperfect media, which should be criticized, but also, you know, 
has a place, did exist, and will continue to exist. I hear that. I feel like we want the same thing. Money. Which is to be able to hold both. And I will say, <laughs> I, what did you say, Ryan? He said money. <laughs> That's true. We yeah, all want we, it, baby. We do all want money. No, it's to hold both. And I feel passionate about it because I, I don't think you're saying this, but I think a lot of people have the fear that if they are critical of something, they will have to lose it. Mm-hmm. And I want to just encourage that that is a very strong fear that I think is very much a part of our culture as Americans. And it's very much a part of capitalism. Capitalism is like, uh oh, nope, you're just you're not going to be able to enjoy it. So just don't look. Don't look. So you can still enjoy. And I want to encourage us to say, like, we can take this movie apart probably more than it merits or needs to be for mm-hmm. for fun and also for educational purposes and still enjoy the fuck out of it. But I mm-hmm. do want to say, like, people, I think, are afraid of criticism for those reasons. They don't want to be they don't want to ruin something and they don't want something to be taken away but ultimately like things will change like we said as we grow and you and your experience watching this and seeing it differently because your partner's in the industry now and you can't you know it is sad things do change and shift and we can still enjoy them that's actually a really good segue Riv, to like the last big point i want to hit about this movie is about that exact dynamic is about like growing up and now living in an age where we understand where we have more context for who who is the butt of the jokes in some of these scenarios? Like at whose expense these jokes are being played for? And something that was really, really highlighted in this rewatch was like, there are some bits in this movie that I have seen 5 million times that to this day, yesterday, I was like laughing my ass off at, you know, like you googly, like (laughs) (laughs) merman, the black lung, (laughs) like, so many things that I was like, this is still funny today. On the opposite side, there's a ton of jokes in this movie that I was like, oh, gross. Like there's like, mm-hmm. we, like I said, there's, you know, there's some there's some like tacit racism in the way that they're like pronouncing things. You mentioned Jerry Stiller doing like a straight up like sexual assault in his office played for laughs. You know, like there's the whole like making fun of Matilda's eating disorder. The the disguise scene is kind of like when they're they're, they're fully <laughs> almost disguised. Blackface. And, almost blackface. Almost blackface. You know, so noticing yeah. those that noticing those things. And on this watch, I was like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, that's ooh, that's gross. Ooh, that's a crime. And <laughs> being able to recognize those things while still deriving like a lot of enjoyment from the film on the whole. And I think that kind of is what you're speaking to, Riv, which is like, it like we can be critical of these things. And just because someone is pointing out the fact that like there's some problematic jokes or there's some like casual racism or whatever, doesn't mean it's not the same thing as people being like, you are not allowed to watch Zoolander anymore. Zoolander canceled. It's gone. It's not, you can't even stream it. We've taken it off. It doesn't even exist anymore. So, because mm. I think that's how a lot of people, especially like, you know, conservatives, you know, free speech absolutists kind of get it twisted where they're like, oh, you're telling me that like, I'm not allowed to do this anymore. It's like, no, we're just like pointing out some like shit that isn't cool. Mm. And like, you're taking that as like a personal threat mm. to your individual liberty. Right. Right. Like, if these are the films that made us, how did they make us in in all ways as well? Mm-hmm. How many Abo Digitals do you see modeling? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although, oh my, my God, Jerry Stiller, when he calls his wife on the runway at the end, that is still, I think that is my favorite it's part. So that is my good. favorite joke in the whole movie. Oh, it's so Get good. off at the expressway and then just take it the whole way here. We'll put, it in, wow. put it in some Tupperware, put it in the fridge, I'll be able to get back. One of the most, one of the things that I think was the best learning 
because there's two moments that I just bef- would hate to not bring up. One is Please. obviously, which I'm more critical of, is the how bulimia is brought up and that and mm-hmm. they they really try and it's so sad because I'm thinking like I was probably just about to become bulimic myself at that point in my life and just mm-hmm. how how terribly they manage that and how many other teenage girls post 9-11 about to be you know because what we understand about bulimia is like it's really nothing to do with vanity or the pursuit of that well that that all of our society feeds in in that way and the pressures of fitting in and which she kind of speaks to in her strange little monologue that she gives while they're drinking Matilda does while she's drinking that tea with Derek and Hansel and he says like he interrupts her and when she says I was a fat kid and he says ew Ew. which it's really hard not to laugh because he delivers it really well but I I laughed and I was like that is so painful it's so painfully fat phobic for a film that was push towards teenagers they wanted to make it rated r and they like Mm -hmm. push to make it not which tells you like they wanted a young audience this thought this was going to do well with a young audience so for anyone who was not model skinny watching this film you're getting all of this like microaggression towards your body even though they claim to be satirizing it which is where i have you know when a satire is just kind of this low-key mocking you're like it does more harm than good and then they kind of admit like they're bulimic and they normalize it in a way that I think maybe an adult brain can understand, yeah. but it ultimately normalizes mm. it. It ultimately is like very, very harmful. And I think it's just, I was like, wow, that's really, thinking about my own journal journey, I'm like, what a harmful piece of media. And they don't cap that conversation with anything like helpful or like- An orgy, like, actually, they cap it with like, an orgy. They cap it with an orgy, yeah. But no, but like, <laughs> but like it, the, the, the conversation ends with, Zoolander and Hansel being like, yeah, we do that too. Next yeah. subject. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like really, really glossed over. Well, it's interesting to bring up that like an adult can understand because when I was watching it, I mean, that appeals to me in the same way because she is, she does push back as the voice of reason being like, it's a disease. And we're right. back to like, we're making fun of these stupid models, but like, she is the voice of reason being like, no, you guys are victims too. Yeah. But it's interesting to hear that it's like, well, from a kid's perspective, as a kid picking that up. Yeah, you don't want similar... to be Matilda as a kid. You, you're like, I want to be the models. They're yeah. the ones with the power in this world. It's a similar thing to like a South Park thing where it's like, wow, South Park really makes fun of everybody. You know what I mean? And they are making fun mm-hmm. of people who are overly sensitive. And these are just words and we're all people and everybody is weird. And it's like, <laughs> is that what everybody who's watching South Park takes away or... Is it doing an impression of Cartman? You know what I mean? That it's like fun that you can say whatever you want and you get to be mean. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, who, who knows what the Matt and Trey's, you know, real intention is. But uh, there's a real intellectual defense of like, no, we're, you know, this is what we're pointing out. We're highlighting, you know, mm. the hypocrisy or how silly these people sound. But what the real time takeaway is from the intended audience, uh, I think I think you're right. It can be totally, totally different. And um Harmful. Contrastingly, mm-hmm. socio-emotionally, I thought the scene between Derek and Hansel when they make up was like taught a lot of really good things that I hope yeah. translated when oh, yeah. they're like, oh, because they have this rival. And it's like, dude, I just love you. You're my idol. Like, I just <laughs> thought that was really like impactful and yeah. probably did a lot of good because it broke down that sort of toxic masculine need to be competitive and they could just be like, I love you. I love you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really lovely when he's like, I'm, I feel threatened by you. And like, I look yeah. up to mm-hmm. you. All right, well, I could continue talking about this movie forever. Um, it's one of my favorites. But this is the point of the episode where we hand out awards for this movie. So we got three of them. Brian, the first award is Best Politics. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. So this is, I think, a little tough. I think it's either the Prime Minister of Malaysia, who yeah. the whole movie is about him ending child labor. <laughs> um mm-hmm. But uh, for uh, the uh, our principal cast, I would say Matilda, um, mm-hmm. the uh, the reporter, because she mm-hmm. she is the one you know from the who is giving this voice of reason and constantly from the outside being like, you know, is this important? You're you're in danger. Your life is being threatened. You're being exploited. You know, and she's helping fighting the machine. So I think those are the two strongest candidates. I yeah, think I so. think. Yeah, I think like societally, Prime Minister of Malaysia. Um, also want to give a shout out to J.B. Pruitt, the greatest uh, hand model of all time, the finger oh. jockey, oh. Uh, played by David Duchovny, who's like, you know, uh, has clearly has been spending the last several decades of his life unraveling this global conspiracy. So, you know, he's put his body he's on the He's doing the work. He's on the ground. He's, he's doing the work. Exactly. Um, all right. Our next award is Worst Politics, character with the worst politics mm. in the movie. It's hard to say if it's Mugatu um, or if it's the Mugatu's overlords, the people who are, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, controlling him. Mm-hmm. I feel like Mugatu is worse because there is some, there seems to be some like autonomy in there. This is like self-preservation. You know what you're doing is evil. You don't care. I mean, you know, the bigger people are doing the same, but they almost, to me, in my mind, it's like, I am hopeful for our future but not because I think we're going to change older billionaires' minds. Mm. I'm hopeful for a future sure. because they're going to die. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and Mugatu is a character where it's like you had a choice. You lived a different life. You are consistently choosing this this, this bad, naughty behavior. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Mugatu, and also I forgot to mention when we were talking, so I guess that's a good place to put it in, is we didn't talk about derelict Mugatu. Oh, my God. I mean, and Derelict wow. is probably actually one of the most um, even salient that. parts of satire where they're really satirizing. Like John Galliano in 2000 had had a, a, a fashion line that was all about the homeless as aesthetic objects. And so they're clearly making fun of that. But I think what is so wild is since 2001, there have been so many moments where you've seen designers get criticized for this and then they reference derelict in the criticism so like this movie comes and then you have just yeah it's it's one of yeah, those I mean, weird... the whole like cosplaying as poor is a whole thing i remember when cbgb's shut down their uh, a john vervatos store took its place uh which is so funny uh. this high-end fashion brand that like you know it's like we're rockers and so i went in to see what it was like in there and i tried on a sweater and the sweater <laughs> had holes in it and um they were like wow that looks really good on you and it was three thousand dollars of course it was <laughs> like, course. I, oh does it look good on me dog do you promise you're not just saying that insane insane so he's like no i've never said that to any customer ever yeah I, this is the you first just look so good <laughs> yeah somebody else behind the cashier is like wow he no honestly he never says that He's, ne- he's never nice. He's 
I think you're both right. I think it has to go to Mugatu from, you know, he's trying to plot an assassination and the derelict campaign. And also, I, for the first time ever, I was like, at the end when he's exposed and he's like essentially caught, he's like, all right, well, I'm going to kill this guy anyway. It's like, what, dog? <laughs> it's like, dog, you're caught. Like, the, the, the jig is up. So yeah, Mugatu. All right, last <laughs> award is best supporting character slash spinoff goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. Mm. I don't know that this is true in any way, but um, is it Alexander Skarsgård? Yes. This is where I was going as well. Yeah. Holy shit. Yep. <laughs> He's so, he has like, he has three lines in the movie and is so fun and is so joyful. He's and like when, 13 years old. He's too. like 13 years old. And also when you look him up on IMDb, I don't know if you've seen his IMDb profile picture. <laughs> <laughs> For Incredible. those listening, he doesn't have pants on. And he's like in a tux. The dream. He's, he's so good. Yeah, that yeah. was that was going to be my choice too. I, I would watch a movie about the, the, the model apartment that Derek lives in with those three other guys. Because honestly, and something that I had never clocked, I was like, this is like a really supportive male environment. Yeah. Like, and which we don't see that often, especially this era. We don't see like a place mm-hmm. where it's just like a bunch of hetero men just being like, Yo, dude! Like, we're here for you. Like, wh- like, what do you like? Wh- we want to take care of you. Like, yeah. we're good. Like, 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 how can we help? We're a family. So I thought that was really, I thought that was really nice to see. And you know, obviously, they all explode in a giant fireball, gasoline fire. But that was all this time. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. The other, the other shout out I'd give is to Todd Mugatu's mm. um, personal assistant, played by Classic. an actor named Nathan Lee Graham. And you know, Todd, Todd is. Todd see I'm just like what does Todd know what has Todd seen what is this world like <laughs> through maybe but but I feel like Todd gets a HBO series or something about personal assistants oh, oh absolutely like an entourage well who's Ari's assistant an entourage oh. similar similar uh, vibe yeah 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 I was just like, thinking that I can't remember his name it's fine it's probably better that we don't remember anything okay. from entourage yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, alas, we have to close this conversation. This was fun, and thank you for letting me get feisty with you, Brian. It got heated. It Didn't got think he- it was going to get so heated. Who would have thought? So heated on the Zoolander pod. <laughs> <laughs> but before we let you go, we would like to ask you how you, as an artist, as a person in your everyday life, how do you practice mm-hmm. your values, be them anti-capitalist, um, or just your, your values... Your anti-capitalist values. Yeah, those those would be good. That's what this show's about. I don't know why I'm tiptoeing around it. No, sure. Never never be afraid, Uh, which is why I support a company (laughs) called Amazon. If you ever get the chance, (laughs) all of my money, every extra dollar. Um, (laughs) They're so cool. No, um, so there's a a couple of very fun things. I don't know if you guys have talked about this before, but we have just gotten into this thing called Free Cycle. I don't know if you guys ever use this. We just had so much like shit around the house that we can't use anymore and have no one would ever buy like a bunch of tiny skateboards. You're talking like tech decks? Yeah, I'm talking like tech decks or like little bridge. Anything that you have lying in your house, somebody wants for something. You know what I mean? An old air conditioner that's still kind of work. You can just throw it on free cycle. People will come to your apartment and people are so, so grateful. And it's we've gotten rid of so much shit in our house. That has been really, really nice. You should check that mm. out. Um, and uh, I've been hosting a show called Drunk Planet Earth. And there is a, a woman named Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. And she talks about, she's a, um, you know, a climate activist, uh, but really a marine biologist, incredibly, incredibly 
uh, cool person who was on a podcast for a long time. You should check out called How to Save a Planet. And they mm -hmm. talk about like, well, what are these, you know, challenges we face with, um, you know, the climate climate change? And then what are the real solutions that we have right now? It's a really, really compelling podcast. But it's just to say she talks about in the things that you care about, the best thing you can do is use what skills you have and put them towards you know, what you're doing, your artistic output or put them towards your goals. So like what you guys are doing here with this podcast is phenomenal is exactly that. And my version of that is Drunk Planet Earth, um, which is a show I've been doing since 2017, where uh, we play a nature documentary, usually, usually a planet Earth, if there's one we haven't seen yet. I'll not have watched the documentary beforehand and me and another comedian, um, we watch it, there are drinking rules based on, you know, what happens. And if anybody has a question about an animal on screen, we uh, try and answer it. And if I get it wrong, I have to take a tequila shot. And if I get it right, you know, they get the shot. Um, but it's a great space where like then at halftime, we talk about like current environmental or, you know, sustainability news for, you know, little prizes or drink tickets. And it's such a fun space. And I, I've never charged any tickets for it because it's like it's just like a fun, lovely show for a bunch of nerdy people who care about animals in the environment. And it's so hard. There used to be so many like free or cheap shows, especially mm. in Brooklyn or in the city. And now it's hard to find those because, you know, it's expensive to live here. Everybody wants to make money or whatever. But we have an arrangement with the bar where like we bring them 100 people once a month for the night. And so like, you know, we don't pay them anything and we're not trying to make any money off it. So um, when and where is that, that we do? That is the second Friday of every month at Easy Lover, which is a bar off the Graham L stop in Williamsburg. Ah. Uh, our next That's one so is fun. November 10th, I believe. Um, yeah. And what's really exciting about this next one is uh, Planet Earth 3 is just being released now. So this is a, a wow. new David Attenborough wow. documentary series. What time uh, did you say it was? 7 p.m. Um, but you're going to want to get there a little early because we have the whole back room, but it fills up really quick. Um, and it's really fun and it's really nice, especially in the like fall and winter in the summer because it's a free show a lot of times it's a rowdy crowd that's just like looking for a free show and drinks and hang out that's totally great but uh oftentimes it just turns into like a bunch of bites so the questions will either be like what's the average lifespan of that eurasian bee eater and then on rowdy nights it'll be like how many nipples does that rat have <laughs> um and you know both really valid questions Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, it's a different vibe depending on who comes to the show. So it's just to say, if you want to come, you're more than welcome. Get there a little early to get a seat or you can stand in the back. Uh, and it's a great, you know, community building thing that we do. And we get to talk about what's going on in environmental news. Amazing. And Brian, where can our audience find you on the internet? Yeah. You can find me at my house, uh, coming groups of five. It's <laughs> so not what find. I asked. That's fine. <laughs> um, you can find me, uh, on all the socials at Mora Than Enough, M-O-R-A-T-H-A-N-E-N-O-U-G-H. Great handle. Uh, Brian, it was so good seeing you, dude. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for picking this movie. Thank you for this absolutely knockdown drag out fight that we had over, <laughs> over Derek Zoolander. Yeah, I'm going to take a nice bath tonight. It's, uh, it's brutal. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. This is so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that information. For next week's movie, we'll be kicking off our holiday series with the Jimmy Stewart holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>